key here is not feeding outdoor cats and not putting out indoor cats outside. It's as simple as that. You are listening to Urban Wildlife Hey, podcast listeners. This is a special episode, a deep dive into the literature about outdoor cats and their impact on wildlife and how to control them. This is not maybe the best episode for you to start with if you've never listened to an Urban Wildlife Podcast episode. And even if you are one of our regular listeners, prepare for a relatively thorough and long listen um, about studies and papers and research. Um, so maybe not the most thrilling stuff if you're not really into the topic. Um, we've got some earlier episodes about impact of cats on wildlife, particularly the Cat Wars episodes. Um, maybe start there, and if you're like, wow, this is fascinating, I want to learn more, then come back to this episode. So if you're in that category, then we hope you enjoy it. And if not, no insult felt, no hard feelings if you decide to stop now and just wait for the next episode we drop. One more thing. We ended up with about two hours of material on this, so I'm chopping it into two episodes. Uh, So what you're listening to now is part one. Please check out the second episode, part two, of our deep dive into cat literature. Exotic Invasive. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Uh, This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with... Tony Crowsdale. And with our special guest host... Clint Springer. Today we're going to do a dive into the literature about outdoor cats and outdoor cat control, I guess. Um, we've been promising this episode for over a year, for maybe before the time we did the, the Cat Wars episode with Pete Mara. Pete Mara is the, is the head of the Migratory Bird Center at the Smithsonian in D.C., I think is his title. But um, he has published on, and we'll look at some of his articles, he's published on uh, on cats as an anthropogenic s- source of mortality for birds, which is another way, and other animals, which is another way of saying like a human-caused thing that kills lots of birds and animals. And let's um, put, you know, let's be clear, he, he was tasked with figuring out and ranking the biggest causes of bird death. What kills birds. Yeah. Right, so it wasn't like he... God, he's like, oh, I don't, cats kill a lot of birds, and I'm rubble with this. He, he, re, he looked at all the ways humans yeah. are killing birds. You know, obviously besides habitat loss because that's the big obvious one. Yeah. But other than that, he he went and uh, looked into it and was shocked to find that this seems to be the biggest one. So we recommend that episode, uh, and I actually reposted it recently because I wrote an article that appeared in Grid Magazine um, here in Philadelphia about. Uh, just basically arguing for, for keeping cats indoors and why that's good. And when Grid ran that article, I went ahead and reposted the Cat Wars podcast episode. So if anyone's discovering the podcast through that article, they can pop on over and, and learn more really easily without having to rummage through older episodes. It's funny. Someone the other day, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't tell me you did that. Someone the other day was like, <laughs> mentioned like the latest episode. And I was like, what? Like, like a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> It's one of those times when you're like, it's like radio, talk, like a call-in show when they play a recorded yeah, one, and they're like, don't call in. <laughs> and it was like hyping an appearance he was going to be at, and I was like, don't go to the academy, he's not going to be there. Um, but uh, anyhow, we've been talking about this episode for a long time, and it kind of stems from something that happens to me and Tony, Tony more than I, because I think he picks fights a little bit more than I do on this topic, um, but uh, where... See, I don't like to think I pick fights. I like to think that I... You confront your friends on Facebook with reality. Yes. Okay. So then what happens is then that someone who's very much an advocate for outdoor cats will um, will wade into the mix and then start... And you'll ask for evidence and about why their favorite control methods are good. And then they'll post links to stuff from Alley Cat Allies, which is... A cat advocacy, or sorry, an outdoor cat advocacy organization called a lobbying organization, um, and then uh, then you're sort of looking at this long list of of citations of articles and reports and stuff, and um, we thought, hey, let's dive in. 
and sort of I keep using these these like immersion and water metaphors. Let's get in there and and look at what gets posted as as sort of the pro cat or pro outdoor cat side of things, the literature on the other side, literature that's not really on one side or another, and sort of see where that where that leads the conversation. And a thought was, I think that I'm impartial as a, as a. I'll point out. I, I always like to point this out. Tony is what I would call a cat person. Tony recently mourned the loss of Lola. Yeah, well, my cat was 17. She died. Um, my fiance's cat. My 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 cat died two weeks after we moved in together. Her cat died two weeks before we moved in together. Our cats never got to overlap. Her cat was old, had kidney failure, kidney uh, disease. My cat was just 17, and it was her time. Um, yeah. And then we decided to take in a stray Ooh, cat. That's frustrating. Yeah. Uh, f- uh, that was coming to our neighbors backyard for nine months and they're basically like yeah the cat's always there anytime you come over and we went out there sure enough the cat was there like they said and jumped right in my lap Zena and we came and we were at a party uh, there we came out a few hours later the cat was still there I went home got a box because I had given away the cat carrier because <laughs> both our cats had died and come back the cat's still there we take it we have the cat for just over a month because we were, you know, right before it was Thanksgiving and we waited till after the holidays to, to get it fixed and take it to get fixed. Turns out, cat's already fixed and chipped. <laughs> it's someone's outdoor cat. Well, that the just cat out- that was adopted out. Yeah, so they're violating the terms. Of not the adoption, right. Right, so I made it clear. I'm like, if this cat come, shows up again, um, it's you're never getting it back. It's just like, you tell the people that this cat... Because, you know, it just comes to our friend's backyard. And like, we'll be told to see the cat. I said, if this cat, we know where this cat hangs out. If this cat shows up outside again, you're not, tell them they're never getting it back. Yeah. So the cat has, has been out since. So, you know, it's Hopefully a shame. that works, yeah. Yeah. It's a shame for us because we really like this cat. But we're going to wait till after we're married now um, before we adopt another cat. But it's on your radar, and then you're also someone who sometimes, as you put it, trash picks cats for friends. Yeah. I mean, um, I really – I think they're phenomenal pets, especially for someone like me. I'm a dog person, but I don't I, – I, I love dogs enough to realize that I'm not I'm not ready for a dog. I don't know if I'll ever be because I love traveling, and I love traveling for excessive periods of time. Yeah. So I don't know if I'll ever be right for a dog, but a cat makes perfect sense. Um, and I, I think they're phenomenal pets, and – but my opinion about cats and their impact on wildlife is because of the evidence, not because I happen to really like birds. And also, let's keep in mind, there's 10,000 species of birds out there and how I don't know how many species of small mammal. So this isn't like a cats versus birds. This is cats affecting you know, thousands and thousands of different species of animal. And we'll see how they affect those animals in a minute. Um, but I think I hope I've established Tony is not a inherent like a right. Cat and, and, and Billy, um, you, you don't have anything against cats, but you know, you, you, yeah, you do love small animals, specifically reptiles and amphibians. But I think again, you you look at it as a you know an ecological, like a holistic ecological issue. Not not you're not. I don't favor cats epic, in any particular you know? way. Yeah. Right, and you're not you don't dislike them inherently. And no, I'm kind of neutral on them. But because you are known as someone whose hobby is observing herps and which are prey of feral cats or outside cats. Yeah. And my hobby that I'm most known for is observing birds, which is prey. People have this idea that we're biased. So the idea was let's get someone who professionally <laughs> studies plants and his hobby isn't specifically observing prey of outside cats. How'd you get to know this? <laughs> I know this person because he was, he was my, I guess technically still is because I still haven't finished my thesis. My, <laughs> my um, advisor at um, St. Joe's, someone I know has a track record of busting my balls about about whether or not I'm doing a good job at science. So, <laughs> and literally you know, refined and taught me a lot about statistics and, and understanding, you know, scientific literature. So, I figure who better to keep us um, true yes. than, than Clint Springer. <laughs> a fine moderator in the sense of moderating our, our passions. Yeah, he's not afraid to call me on my bullshit, <laughs> yeah. and he knows how to objectively look at things. It has no inherent bias. Clint, you, let you introduce yourself. How, sure. how do you introduce yourself? Um, I'm an associate professor in the biology department at St. Joe's, and my area of scholarship is plant 
physiological ecology. So I mainly study how um, climate change factors, things like atmospheric uh, carbon dioxide, temperature, water availability affect plants and their physiological functioning with the goal of plugging that into models so that we can predict how ecosystems will respond to future uh, climate change. So very, very current I, I, topic these days. Yes, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's one that has gotten a lot of attention lately. Probably Well probably, chosen, sir. <laughs> probably not the right kind of attention. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, and I am an, an unbiased individual here because I am not a cat person. I am not anti-cats. But I personally have dogs and have preferred dogs. Um, but um, but it was pretty fascinating to delve into this literature that we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, definitely have learned some things that I did not know. So, Well then, right on. Um, I'm going to pause just for a second to do stuff I should have done at the beginning. Uh, if you like this podcast in general or this episode, please rate us highly on your podcast listening platform of choice, whether that's Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or, or Stitcher or what have you. Um, that helps other people find our podcast, and please leave us a review. Please uh, also get in touch if you have any ideas. Um, urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Again, urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com or on Twitter, urbwildlifecast. Let us know if you've got any ideas. Um, if you are a, like a hobbyist volunteer like me or if you're a researcher um, looking at urban wildlife, and we count plants in that, then, you know, give us a holler and we would love to talk about what you do and maybe feature an outing or, or an interview with you about your work out in the field. Yeah, speaking of urban plants, I spent today tapping sugar maples in a Creek Park and also along the parkway. Most of the trees were actually in the park, you know, rather than one was a street tree and then two, and then the other three are... are You're the confident park. they're going to they're gonna survive the equipment and stuff i don't i have no idea okay is it expensive equipment no i this is like (laughs) hand-me-downs from the other environmental centers of course tony's environmental center doesn't get the new equipment (laughs) you know we do we do we have purchased a fair amount of new equipment but like um for an operation like this is you know we don't know what to expect you know we'll see how it is but what's it's what's cool is i was um we don't have a gator here we don't have we have I haven't issued an offer yeah, how do you schlep the bucket vehicle of, of exactly yeah. so uh, I ordered today uh, two of the largest Nalgene's I could get um, <laughs> and I have a special like uh, cargo racks like on the fork of my fat bike and so <laughs> I'm gonna be in fact I installed the the taps today via my my, my fat bike I, so I'm gonna be riding that back and forth how many bikes do you have Tony I have six. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the uh, I look forward to maybe we can do some kind of tasting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's dive in. I mean, I I had I did my best to come up with some somewhat arbitrary way to sort through this stuff. Um, I thought, I, why don't we start with the papers about the impact of cats on wildlife? Um, and we have a couple of these are. I think the same set of authors, but are sort of reviews more than anything, and then or summaries of research, and then a few of them are specific studies that sort of get us into what is the research that builds up to the the sort of overarching articles. Is how I thought of it. What do y'all think? Yeah, sounds good. Absolutely. Good. Okay. So the the first one is is kind of the big one in terms of impact of as the title puts it, the impact of free-ranging domestic cats on wildlife of the United States by Loss, Will, and Mara. Pete Mara is the last one on that list um, we've talked about a little bit. This is a, a paper that takes that takes field studies, let's say, of how many animals a cat kills, um, trying to figure out what's a normal cat in terms of its killing, and then multiplies that by the number of cats, and you get a range of the total things that cats kill in the United States. This paper surprised me, to be honest. I had heard that cats kill lots of prey and lots of wildlife, but uh, the numbers in this paper are shocking, really, and to think about. I mean, the, the geographic scale is, that they're working with is rather large, too, but this is a much bigger problem than I ever anticipated. 
So it was great that you guys were able to um, host one of the authors of this paper. And the other thing is, too, is that just coming from a scientific standpoint, a, a study published like this in Nature Communications is a high-quality scientific journal and well-respected in every field that, that um, publishes in it. And so I was even more surprised to see this paper in this particular journal, honestly. So, And so the, the bottom line numbers are something like 1.3 to 4 billion birds killed every year and between 6 and 22 billion mammals killed annually. Um, and you might say, whoa, those are huge ranges. Um, it seems like a lot of uncertainty. And I think it's, it's actually a pretty fair way to approach it, to be honest about you know, we're not totally sure this varies geographically and study to study. So start taking the low end to the high end. That's the kind of range we're looking at. Yeah. What are the criticisms that this paper gets from the invasive species lobby <laughs> is that if that many, you know, birds are killed a year and if they weren't killed, then there'd be an astronomical number of birds. Or also that there's like, there aren't that many people will say breeding bird surveys find a relative, like something like 11 billion or something like that, birds breeding. Yeah. How could that be right with this many killed? Sorry, I interrupted you and you were... Well, yeah, yeah. Um, we're just talking about the criticisms that we hear. Yeah. And I think what people don't understand is that, you know, birds inherently have um, a high amount of mortality um, and it's kind of built into the breeding systems. And most birds, especially songbirds, are showing decline. Yeah. And... Breeding bird surveys, often it's difficult to find the nestlings because they're not vocal. Not the nestlings, but the recent fledglings. So they're not vocal. And so breeding bird surveys, usually conduct, you have to choose a bit one time to do them, more or less. And it's not always... It's it's timed more when the birds are still singing and when they're feeding young. But birds will have... Some will have multiple broods. Ideally, you would do like a breeding bird... Like a survey in August late July, August, and that's when the maximum number of birds are around, right? Because they haven't died yet. Yeah. Because right? they're, they're recently fledged. But, so that, and that number would be much higher and then those birds, you know, die. You and, know. and you need this, in one way to to think about about how to keep up a stable population is that with birds and their life histories, you need a certain high production level and a high number of fledglings that then, you know, they're all going to try to, for a lot of the birds, are going to try to migrate. Not all of them make it back because migration's, migration's right. tough. It's still a big hit to the population. Hey, and a lot of the um, birds, too, are also breeding in areas that are inaccessible. You know, huge swaths of of Bora forest, you know, where the white-throated sparrows and juncos are, are being produced, you know, aren't being and then they and then, they, <laughs> and then they, they spend their winters here with our cats. Yeah. Um, so the the next paper, which is on a similar kind of theme sort of expanding it, is a, a broader look by two of the same authors, Scott Loss and Peter Mara, um, Population Impacts of Free-Ranging Domestic Cats on Mainland Vertebrates from Frontiers Frontiers in Ecology. Published by the Ecological Society of America. This is looking at not just literature on what cats kill directly, but also on their effects in terms of what diseases they spread to wildlife and that includes, you know, toxoplasmosis to monk seals in um, Hawaii, that or or sea otters and off the coast of California, I guess, and mountain lions getting feline leukemia, and um, so it also includes stuff like the fear effects, which is that you can impact behavior of prey populations by the presence of, of predators, even if they're not directly killing, and so you might have birds. It basically spooked away from places where they'd otherwise be feeding or breeding, what have you, because they see lots of cats walking around. Um, and so you can have effects on animals without directly killing them. One of the comments I would make about the previous article, <clears throat> as well as this one, is that, um, well, this one is actually a little is a little tighter, um, in my opinion, because the other one takes, is a, it's a literature review, right? But they do, they do do a meta-analysis of the studies that are out there. And my guess is that those numbers, which are shockingly high, and they do sound high to me too, but, you know, big num- we hear big numbers all the time that sound shockingly high that I can't even fathom, especially when we talk about things like economy, right? But <laughs> the, um, 
the idea, you know, they, they have, they're limited. The analysis is always limited by the amount of original research that's been published, right? So the, yeah. their, their replication is relatively small. And it's a relatively simple model analysis, which is a back, what, what we would all call a back-of-the-napkin calculation, where you apply your assumptions uniformly across the entire thing. Yeah. And so it's expected that they would there would be. But they, it's interesting that they did publish a correction to this article because they published results for a 90% confidence interval and then um, came back and published results for a 95% confidence interval. And it's and it reduced the range and the amount, but only by about 10% on either side. So yeah. you're still in the... What's a confidence still, interval? What? <laughs> well, that could take some more time. That may be another episode, but... Maybe I should make Tony tell you, actually. <laughs> I, I, I could do it. I remember my stats classes. So yeah. a confidence interval is just um, so that you're... Basically, what we do, if, I, if it's a 90% confidence interval, then you have there's a, a, a that 90% of the values, 90% of the data would fall between the end caps. So that's their size estimates, something like 1.3 billion to, or 6.7 billion to 20 billion. Um, a 95% confidence interval encapsulates more of those, but is also more conservative in its estimate so that you're encapsulating more of the variation that's in the in the distribution of numbers. And so um, you can think about that uh, if you think about the average and then the the distance from the average, all 95% of values should fall within two what we call standard deviations of the average of a distribution. So you're thinking of something like in a curve. Right. So, so yeah, a bell-shaped curve. How far curve. out on the curve right. are you? Right, so how yeah. far out on the curve are you? So you go two standard deviations away from the mean, and that's where you get 95% of your values, Yeah. Uh, generally. So one standard deviation is 60% of the values, and it's just additive from there. But anyway, um, those are that's it's a pretty tight... It was a pretty tight analysis, for, despite having a relatively low number of studies. So... It suggests that the data is really good, and I, I actually think that they're taking the, from all of the papers that we read, this paper in particular was, in my opinion, the most robust in all of its analyses. So, anyway, <clears throat> since I'm commenting objectively, that's what I would say about it. <laughs> robust. Yeah. <laughs> the word for my, my statistical past. So now I want to dive a little bit more you might be like, okay, so they're pulling together articles about cats killing wildlife or studies about cats killing wildlife. What kind of studies are we talking about? What does it look like when you try to study cats killing wildlife? Um, and I'm actually going to slip one in that I forgot to share. I just have to mention it because it's such a fundamental paper in this field. Um, somehow I forgot it. So this is another one appearing in a fine journal. It's called Measure Predator Release and Avifaunal Extinctions in a Fragmented System Appeared in, in Nature. And it was by Kevin Crooks and, I might, might pronounce this wrong, Michael Sewell. It looks like I should say Soule, but I'm not totally sure. Um, this appeared in 1999. And this is one where basically they looked at patches of habitat in San Diego, some that, had, that were sort of surrounded by developments. You had people's cats wandering in, and you had coyotes in some patches and some in, uh, not in other patches. You had coyotes moving in or moving out of patches. So you're able to compare similar habitat with and without coyotes, and then some similar some same patches with and without coyotes. And then look, they looked at sort of bird abundance um, in those patches and found that coyotes increased bird abundance in the patches. Well, the that, presence of coyotes correlated with higher bird populations. Sorry, fair point. The presence of coyotes correlated with higher, but both on spatially and temporally with greater bird abundance and lower cat presence in the patches. And so that's where you get this great phrase, mesopredator release, added to the band list, you know, or band title list. Yeah. And so the, the idea is that the, the coyotes suppress the cats, which we, we're going to see another paper we're going to talk about, and that that cat suppression then relieves sort of the, the predation pressure, pressure on the birds so the birds do better when coyotes are around. And so you, you see this a lot in people like me and Tony, that even though coyotes aren't actually native to here, people look at them and say, well, they're going to save us from the cats because they, they either eat the cats, scare away the cats, or scare the owners of cats who keep them inside more. So I just want to touch well, on in, that. Go ahead, look that one up, guys, if you yeah. want to read a, a, a good paper about this kind of thing. But San Diego is an area that's native, you know, 
Coyotes are native. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. And the other thing about saying that coyotes aren't native here, well, is the um, it's true, but this area would have been inhabited by eastern wolves, and they're not really sure exactly what that was. Like coyotes being closely related and part of a species complex with wolves. So yeah, there's like the red wolf, the eastern wolf, the gray wolf, and coyote, and there's a bit of fuzziness to what's what. You know, it's clear what a gray wolf is, and it's clear what a coyote is. The it's not so clear what an eastern wolf is and, and what a red wolf is. You know, the coyotes here might be very closely related, shared a lot of genes with, and filling an almost identical role to to the, we, the wolves. The, yeah, that we had here. Fair point. So the next one, which a little cruder in how it looks at the cat-coyote interaction, it's not the primary purpose of the article, I guess, but ecological impact of inside-outside house cats around a suburban nature preserve by Roland Kays and Emile Dewan, apologies to Emile, from Animal Conservation in 2004. Um, and this was cited in another article um, as, a, as another measure of what cats kill. And so basically it was, it was looking at a nature preserve where Mike McGraw has done a lot of work, Albany Pine Bush yeah. Preserve, and looking at, they, they sort of talked to people about their cats and then they actually sort of studied where cats went and observed cats. And some big takeaways that I took from this were that cat owners underestimate cat kills, that the cat owners would say that, let's say, a cat killed about 1.67 kills per month or killed 1.67 animals per month. And then the folks observing the cats saw them kill more than that um, and so called it more like five and a half on average. And then they found that cats avoided getting too far into the forest preserve. And so they guessed that this might be due to coyotes and fishers that live in the woods that would be two larger predators that could kill cats. Also, they didn't see actually a whole ton of impact on native rodent populations from however many of the cats killed. So this is one where, where they might not be really hammering the rodents in the preserve. They did, I guess, I don't know, call it hypothesis that um, maybe they would increase the isolation of patches by keeping rodents from moving, native mammals, rodents from moving around patches, and then sort of made an argument for studying actual impact on prey populations, kind of like Crooks and Sewell. I thought this, I actually thought, well, the, first of all, they didn't look at birds, so that, so it's hard to, and some of the other studies that we've looked at, or we will look at, we'll talk about, didn't see big impacts on rodent populations the way that you would expect, right? I, and it's interesting, this was a funny thing, that, a thought that I had this afternoon when I was looking at some of the literature today, was that we have this notion, this deep-set, cultural, iconic relationship between cats and mice. And I think it affects how we, what we think about happening outside of our houses. Yeah. Right? So we think that mice are they're probably what they're eating the most. And in reality, they're probably eating small mammals and birds, more than likely. And other small, you know, so they're eating, yeah. they're eating, they're not eating the, the, they're not eating the mice as much. Now we, anecdote always trumps data. And so, <laughs> um, and I can't, I can't take credit for that quote. That was Paul Offit from Chop who said that first. Um, but it was, it's a great observation because you get a have a cat, they bring a mouse to the door, cats are killing mice, right? So Maybe the cat just got lucky that it killed a mouse. And in your house. Right. It's, right. Yeah, it's more and, like, right. And so they're likely to run into that prey in that we environment. We tend not to right. have least shrews running yes, around right, our exactly. Yeah. kitchen. Right, exactly. Exactly, right. You know, yeah. weasels or squirrels. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I've seen, you know, anecdotally, I've seen, you know, cats go after squirrels. Yeah. You know, so... And they seem to kill a fair amount of bunnies too. So uh, yeah, well, I I have we have a we have a rabbit in our neighborhood that has um, damage on his on the left side of his face because of his running with a cat that when he was a kid and I and I saved him from it. Um, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. I was very unhappy with Tinkerbell who lives across the street from us that they took my my daughter's bunnies out of our yard so yeah. not not that they belong to her but she observes them frequently so yeah um yeah we had it but we, you're touching you're touching on something that is a part of this cat discussion that i wish got into it more which is that the question of how cats impact wildlife is not is is also a question of how people who support the cats are imposing on other people who value other things outdoors yeah, yeah. you know my daughter and i 
like looking at birds and I like looking at brown snakes, you know? And, yeah. Um, and so if you're someone whose personal cat is outside or is feeding cats outside, you're sort of imposing your cats on the stuff that we like to look at. Right. You know? Well, it's not just that either. I mean, I have, I, I'm a dog owner and if I took my dog and turned her loose in my neighborhood, animal control would show up immediately and I'd be fine for that Yeah. because yeah. there's a leash law for it. And you know, of course I don't let my dogs run loose in my neighborhood and it does, it does somewhat bother me personally that people turn these, their cats loose, especially when they have the, the kind of impact that we know that they do have. They have an impact no matter what. And in my view, we should always minimize whatever impact we can whenever we can. And that seems like an easy one to do. Yeah. I mean, it's distressing when you, you know, there's, I have to, I have a have a heart trap that someone donated to me that, but it needs to be repaired and I haven't figured out how to repair it yet. So this is, but there's a cat that stalks the feeder at, at the environmental center and it does like disturb me, you know, like I look outside at the bird feeders and it's there for educational purposes. Yeah. You want visitors to see birds. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, there's a cat stalking it. And, and then, and when I've, uh, had container gardens and, and backyards of houses I've lived in in the city, there be, they become litter boxes for, for, for you know, oh, for your own cats. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is like a in, imposition on other people for sure. Um, so the next one, <laughs> uh, keep moving, um, is by Stanley Gert, Evan Wilson, Justin Brown, and Chris Anchor, or, sorry, and Chris Anchor, um, Population Ecology of Free Roaming Cats and Interference Competition by Coyotes in Urban Parks. Um, I don't know if this adds a ton to the discussion, but um, it was just sort of another thing in pointing out that... Um, Cats seem to be kept out of natural habitats when coyotes are around. And this is in Chicago, which is a famously well-studied coyote population um, and a really high density of coyotes. It's one of these, I forget the numbers, but it's one of these things where it's like when you, when you read, like everybody knew there were coyotes in Chicago, but when, when actually they put out camera traps and like really tried to study it systematically, like it blew everyone's mind how many coyotes are there. No one even had any idea that there are that many. Um, but and that they they do seem to be uh, keeping the cats out of the the more natural areas. I think this is a classic example of um, ecological niche partitioning as yep. well, because you know if, so if you don't have to compete, why compete? And I mean, the, and the the other thing is the coyotes could be predators for the cats too. But but I don't think. Coyotes seem to thrive near disturbed environments, not in disturbed environments. So we don't see them, whereas cats really, or let me, I guess not disturbed, maybe the wrong word, but um, um, populated environments, right? So where, where we exist immediately surrounding us and then nearby things, places like here in Philadelphia, like Cobbs Creek Park or the West of Hicken or something like that. We have large tracts of land. You're more likely to find coyotes, but cats aren't going to wander there. And so one of the other things that the last paper, I think, talked about most of the kills happening um, in gardens or immediately adjacent to the, yeah. the home property. They weren't getting um, deep Right. So they weren't going in, and they're only going into the edge of forest. I would say this is really showing niche partitioning between those two predators. And my guess is they just don't want to... They don't want to. They don't want to deal with each other. Well, I do think though that the coyotes eat the cats. I think they do it too. Well, it's well established. Oh, there's a eat. video going around, which is it's kind of it's fun to see the reactions by different types of people, at least on Facebook. Yeah. Um, where it's like it says like this is why we need predator control, and it shows like coyotes eating cats, <laughs> and so like. The, yeah. Some people are like, exactly, kill those coyotes. <laughs> and then, like, all the nature nuts in our circles are like, yeah. looks like predator control's working just fine to me. <laughs> yeah. um, and so yeah. it's a... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. As, as a, funny pictures of, of coyotes mowing down. And, it's okay. funny, yeah. As one of the reasons I know Clint will call me on, 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 me on stuff is we, we differ in our opinions on personal ownership of firearms. We do, and uh, <laughs> I think and, I'm more on Clint's side of this. Yeah. And so, because Please, of, let's not get into that. No, no, I'm saying I because of my interest <laughs> in hobby in fire and firearms, I look at um, you know, like gun, you know, literature or like websites, and that 
videos going around and it's exactly that. They're like, we need to, you know, it's so funny how people will use that for whatever, whatever your interest is. They're like, this is why you need like, you know, it's anybody, anybody that uses guns is, is seems to be an ally for, for the gun industry. Right. So it's like, because people hunt coyotes, therefore like we need to like, if people are sympathetic to killing coyotes because the people, except for obviously leftists, like my friend Dwayne, who was just, um, he just got off. He was arrested for uh, uh, bringing an AK-47 to a Klan rally. Like, as in, like, don't invade our town. You know, he was in, he's a, a, a leftist who <laughs> is armed and he, uh, and, and so he, he was arrested and then they, he got off. I know. And the gun community isn't embracing him, but they are embracing the coyote hunters. And they're using <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's funny how, like, anybody who has a, you know, uses a gun is, so it's funny how that, exactly, like, it's used by everybody. But yeah, it's, if well, it's actually actually it's funny that you brought up the gun thing because um, I was I was thinking about that too today because some of the literature that that is here is uh, one of the things that you see with the, with the control which I know we haven't gotten there yet but it, there's an analogy to gun control with cat control and I'll wait till we get there to make but it, I, I, but I know what it exactly but it yeah, is but it's most of the anti most of the wait, don't bust it now <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's get to those let papers the, first let yeah. the tension build yeah, we'll, we'll, right. yeah so so, so the, the next one we don't want to spend a long you're going to like my argument Tony I promise we don't want to spend I don't, made it before. <laughs> I guarantee you made it I don't want to spend a long time on this next one just because <laughs> I'd seen it and people will comment on like well at least the outdoor cats are killing the house mice yeah and so um, this is a study uh, it is called The Effect of House Cats Being Fed in Parks on California Birds and Rodents by Cole Hawkins, William Grant, Michael Longnecker. That's a great name. And it was in Proceedings of a Symposium, Proceedings of the International Urban Wildlife Symposium. Basically, it's a, it's a little study looking at um, areas in a park around uh, cat colonies and saying what kind of rodents are you seeing around these cat colonies. Um, and one year they didn't see they saw more of an effect than the other year. Um, but the gist of it were that the, the house mice, which is, an, to make clear, it's an exotic species to these shores. Mus musculus is a Central Asian, um, Eurasian species that, um, that came over with us, uh, Europeans, um, to, to North America. That native rodents seem to be more abundant away from the cat colonies than next to the cat colonies. And not much of an impact on the house mice. It didn't seem like the cats were knocking out the house mice. It seems like, if anything, the rodents that were taking more of a hit from the cats were the native rodents rather than the house mice. Sound like a fair summary? Basically, what they're, what they're saying here is that they're having a significant effect in one section, but they're not necessarily having a across all species evenly. So there's something, there's something unique yeah. about the environment that they find deer mice and harvest mice in, which is probably that they're close to structures or something like that. So we've seen, if you start putting the story together with all of this research and you start to see that the cats are hunting, most cats are hunting close to human structures. Yeah. That brings in a certain type of prey. Those prey seem to be more affected. Songbirds, these mice, but house mice seem to be the ones that, that are oddly not, Effective. <laughs> right, and that's the thing that I that so. I that's, like, that's right. What you just said right? that seems something to be I, I take away. I mean, I the house mice don't seem to be maybe in a house they are, um, right? But out in the environment, because I've encountered this argument that well, the free roaming cats help keep our neighborhood free of mice or something like that, and I'm not sure that house mice. Yeah. Um, if any small critter is well adapted to house cats, it is the house mouse. Right. Um, it's really interesting because you know they are effective control of house mice in your house you know like your house is confined yeah you know i've lived in places with i mean it's anecdotal of course but you know in west philly there's a lot of house mice there are but like i mean our neighbors on the block they got like three or four cats yeah and they keep seeing mice (laughs) and like (laughs) we haven't seen a mouse in months and like i don't know what it is like some years we do some years we don't I'm not sure what it is, yeah. but we don't have any cats. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't yeah. the cats that's keeping them out of our house, you know? Um, maybe it's the effectiveness of snap traps. I don't know. And then, like, I recall when we talked to Michelle Niermeyer um, from the, the, the integrated, pest ma- from integrated Pest Management with the Penn State Agriculture Extension 
lives in West Philly, not too far away. She was saying specifically that they don't recommend house cats as the solution for rodents in your house. They you know talk more about sealing up your food, being you know yeah. generally good hygiene, um, sealing up holes where mice tend to enter, but that cats they're not like the the perfect solution for right. for rodents. Well, there's I mean there's not there's plenty of places for them to go where there aren't cats, right? So they can build populations and then they spread and yeah. I mean, if there's a place and I don't know I don't know that I don't know any numbers about our own city here in Philadelphia, but it would seem to me that if there was a place that cat that mice population should be low, it should be West Philadelphia <laughs> because there are a number of stray cats. I mean, I, oh, see, yeah. I see them. They're, they're thick here. No so, block. Has, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm sure walking out to my car tonight, I'll see one. <laughs> you know, it's almost a guarantee. So you would expect those numbers to be low. But I, but I think, you know, this is one of those things where, where evolution is just keeping up. Yeah. You know, the, the, the mice are... Are their numbers? They're they they're notorious for overproducing um, their numbers. That's why that's really why they're problematic in a home, right? Is not so much that one mouse is bad. It's the problem is that if you have one <laughs> mouse, you probably have Ten a whole more. litter of mice somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. That's that your cereal's being carried off to or whatever, <laughs> or your my, my dog food. That's what they always seem to to they always gravitate even towards. even in a nice bowls. neighborhood like Ardmore. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's Sorry. right. That's right. We are no strangers to this in Ardmore. So the, seen, the main line does not save you there. <laughs> I haven't seen one mouse in uh, my house with Angie, and it's probably because the house is a lot cleaner than that. Not that my house. You've been to my house a bunch of times. It wasn't particularly messy. Yeah. But uh, my own house. But now that I. And domestic. Your old house was not the cleanest place in the world. <laughs> it wasn't, but it wasn't. It wasn't a pigsty. Was no, 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 no. But now that I, you know, and I'm not implying that Angie cleans more than me. It's, it's that I clean more that I because I live with Angie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So the uh, the next one, um, I think, is the last of these sort of like what a, what do cats do to wildlife articles. Um, we're going to talk about. Quantifying free-roaming domestic cat predation using animal-born video cameras. I loved it. Yeah. Um, in biological conservation by Carrie Ann T. Lloyd, Sonia Hernandez, John Carroll, Kyler Abernathy, and Greg Marshall. Um, and basically, this is getting at, like, how do you know what cats are killing? You know how you can find out? You strap cameras onto the cats. Yeah. <laughs> and then you record what the hell they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so this one found that they weren't killing as many birds in, as in other studies. They were apparently hammering the lizards, Carolina annals, which is what some people call chameleons, little green, yeah. or they, they shift between green and brown coloration, Di- mostly diurnal lizards that then sleep. It's kind of cute when you find them doing this. They'll sleep on the ends of vegetation. So you'll see like, you think of like a, an old dead goldenrod or something like that, and you'll see them way out on the tip. <laughs> and you can totally see the cats picking them off at night. This is sort of a, one of these studies quantifying what cats catch and how owners perceive it differently than what they actually kill. And this is one where these numbers even surprised me a little bit that 49% of the kills were left at the site of the kill, 28% consumed, only 23% brought home. And so it's don't trust just what your cat brings home. Yeah. Um, and then also that what cats eat is very locally specific depending on what's abundant in wherever they are. So in one place, I read a, a journalistic article about one of the researchers' next papers uh, or next studies, which I haven't seen anything published about, but Sonia Hernandez did something similar with cat cameras out um, in a, basically a resort barrier island, um, Jekyll Island, I think, and, uh, and found they were just apparently hammering frogs. Um, not as many birds, but just tons of frogs. And also that not all cats are killers. Is this the one that said 44%? Um, yeah, I believe this was actually. Yeah, only a little less than half of the cats were actually hunting. So this one's like brings up this interesting question: like, if you could strap cameras to all the cats, <laughs> I mean, the cameras are expensive. I looked them up; they're like a hundred and something dollars. Um, but if you could strap cameras to like all the cats, you could figure out which ones are actually the killers. In my ideal world, <laughs> we'd settle this by like individually monitoring the cats and pulling yeah. out the killers, you know. But then you have the fear effect. But the, again, it's also only if they kill with a camera on them. Maybe they're behaving differently when they don't have cameras on them. Right. Maybe some uh, cats with the cameras. I'm just saying it's like right. You have to think about that, right? It's like the uh, the uh, when you when you study when you study uh, light 
particles and they behave as a wave when when there's no detector particle and they wave, yeah. particle when there is a detector <laughs> and just throws reality into a whole mix yeah. <laughs> whole mess maybe we should have cat breeding programs for docile for the 50 percent and increase the genes of them and our domestic cat population <laughs> we should artificially select for the cats that, for non-hunting cats maybe we just make it. i mean you know we so you have to modify them. We've bred the dog. We've bred. We, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> if it fixes this problem, we could be done with it. We don't have to have this discussion anymore. <laughs> so, um, with the, that little, let's, let's wrap up the the what do cats do in the, the outdoors question, and let's move into if we accept that cats are a problem outdoors. Part of that is going to be how do you know convince cat owners to keep their cats inside? But then what do you do about the cats that don't seem to have owners and are outside? On a fun evolutionary note, that along with things like dogs, other pets that came out of sort of commensal life, the history of, of this cat species and its relationship with humans is not of pets exactly. It's of an animal that was attracted to our habitations, yep. lives on our trash, lives on the rodents that eat our food, but is, over his, its history, predominantly not a pet. Right. And so it makes it a, an interesting question of we are sort of controlling it in its predominant phase. I don't know. Right. <laughs> well, one thing I think that these studies certainly show, especially the last one, is that this one of the arguments uh, you hear from the invasive uh, species lobby is that they uh, they say that you'll often hear that fed cats don't hunt and it's clear that that's not the case yeah I mean within hours of being let outside they clearly hunt right in, in some capacity. and these are whether these, they kill or not is right one thing, and these, but, these and this was correct me if I missed this but it, this is pet cats they're not putting yeah, that's they're, not, right. they're not going to yeah, like behind collars on, I think it was one stray cat they tried to get a collar yeah on. yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to put them on uh, the cats behind Walmart, right? I mean, granted, yeah. like they're, they're probably reluctant to do that because the chances of getting your tra- of your yeah, uh, right. back are, exactly. are, are, are you're not going to get that back, yeah. Right, but I mean, if they, you know, they do come to the, you do go to these uh, colonies where people recognize cats over and over again. You know, you know, I I, I go to these websites of these people, they they know these cats individually, you know, and they have names for them and everything. Right. Um, well, apparently, as we'll see in some of the literature, that they they. Underestimated the, the cat people. The I don't know if say cat people. You know the cat f- caretakers or the, the people who maintain these colonies underestimate the numbers of cats. That yeah, are. right. Because they only see the ones that come nearby. Yeah, the yeah. ones that show themselves. Right, right. And uh, yeah, the the, the uh, um, I have a friend who's a behavioral ecologist, Scott McRobert, and he's talked about the cats and a little bit. He, we've talked about it before, just just in the hallway and. He basically says the cats, you know, just cohabitate, right? And that domestication shows a very unique signature in behaviors. And, and dogs obviously show those. They're, there's a hierarchy of command. They respond to an owner. This is why cats, most of the time, if you call them, they're not necessarily like... Yeah. You know, there are plenty of cats that are, too, though. My mother-in-law has a cat. His name's Socks, and... Socks is the largest cat I've ever seen. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the cat actually has fat that drags the floor as he walks. It's impressive. <laughs> oh God. I know. Um, but anyway, Socks, first of all, Socks, I don't think... Socks goes outside and panics, so he comes right back in. But um, but he's he's a very loving cat. You know, he's, he's he feels more like a pet. But I've had cats. We had cats. I was saying uh, before we started recording that... Uh, I grew up on a farm. We had a barn, and we had a population of, of feral cats that lived in the barn, and we never fed them or watered them. We didn't take care of them. They just, they one time a stray cat showed up yeah. off the road, and all of a sudden we started having cats. And we only had, we always had like four or five. And they were they were actually weird because they were smaller than most house cats. And my guess is is that being stunted. smaller cats, they were probably <laughs> stunted by the yeah. fact that they were out there struggling in life and not yeah. being you know taken care of. And so being smaller was better. They were also bobtail, which was interesting. It's an interesting mutation that I, showed up there. I um, my friends had a barn cats out in central PA in the mountains, and the cats all had like seven claws on their paws. Yeah, the polydactylism. Yeah, yeah, it's a really cool genetic. So what thing. are you saying? Yeah. Is that like just weird little? 
inbreeding effects here and there? Or just, it just happens that they... It's a mutation that has a relatively high frequency in that, in that particular animal. And, yeah. and breeding has probably enriched that. Yeah. And the other thing is, too, is that it doesn't have any kind of negative effect. Yeah. So selecting it out of the population is, is difficult. Do you drink booze? I do. Okay. <laughs> just, a, just a finger, though, please. Uh, <laughs> scotch or rye? I, uh, I'll have rye. So, yeah. hey, let's, uh, let's talk about the vacuum effect, guys. So, first thought is, okay, we got cats outside, too many cats outside, especially the stray ones. What do we do with them? And so people like me and Tony might say, well, you get them the hell off the streets and what you do with them next is not, frankly, we're not too concerned one way or the other. If you kill them, it's a little sad, but you mean you're saving other things. And so on balance, it's, it's a morally acceptable thing to do. Yeah. The, the, the one thing that drives me crazy, I think you've heard me say it ad nauseum, is the idea that when they talk about the cruelty and, the, you know, so many times you talk to these advocates for not killing these cats at all and they'll say you, you know humans just have, don't have the right to kill animals like like and they have no right to euthanize these cats and I'm like but you're euthanizing the domestic animals that you feed them or the fish that you harvest oh yeah you were them. the one who mentioned like something like the paper that came out recently one third of all meat production goes to feed pets yeah. It isn't just like a little bit of byproduct that ends up in the cat food. No. We're... And there's this yeah. trend now to have pet food be all meat and, not, and not grain. Yeah. And like higher quality. So it's like, it's going to only exacerbate that. We feed our pets the amount of meat the human population of France eats yeah. every year. So this idea like, okay, you save these cats, you don't euthanize them. So the cat lives a number of years Animals have to be killed to keep that cat yeah. alive for those years. So if you euthanize it, you just kill one animal and stop the killing of it in the wild and all the animals that are fed to it. It seems, by numbers, it seems to be the most humane solution. Hey, podcast listeners. This wraps up part one of our deep dive into the outdoor cat, cat control literature. Please check out part two.